tremendous challenges and opportunities exist right now for our nation's water infrastructure. In this 15-minute podcast, the industry's top leaders and innovative minds share their knowledge and insights for ensuring our water systems are operating safely and efficiently. These discussions are designed to motivate and create vibrant 21st century water systems and the innovative workforce required to lead and operate them. This is 21st Century Water with your host, Aquasite founder and CEO, Mahesh Lunani. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are and what time you're listening to this. I'm with Cameron Grawl. He's the director of King County Wastewater Treatment Division in the state of Washington. King County actually serves close to 2 million residents and covers over three counties. But prior to taking on this role, Cameron was a corridor development director at the 116-mile rail system connecting the greater Seattle area. But he was also a city manager at the city of Burien, a community with 50,000 residents and hundreds of businesses. He has a master's in public administration from Harvard Kennedy School and a bachelor's in geology from the University of Washington. I actually look forward to this conversation, not just about challenges of running and preparing utility for the 21st century, but through the lens of a professional administrator and not a professional engineer for a change. (laughs) Welcome, Cameron. Well, thanks. Thanks, Mahesh, for having me here. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, this is a very interesting job, and I've, I've been blessed with a series of interesting, primarily public sector opportunities. That's where my heart is, is just serving in the, in the public sector. But we have great working relationships with many, many companies, private sector entities to help us be successful. And I see those partnerships as growing over time. We need expertise. We need new technology. We need to stay abreast of, of where things are going because we have a pretty important duty to fulfill. Um, now I get a chance to make sure that water is clean, that resources are recovered, and that value is provided for the dollars that people pay into the system. Other jobs have been different forms of the same kind of thing, but ultimately making quality of life better. Right. Well, I really look forward to So I want to get right into a question. You talked about the public sector. Mm-hmm. You were a city manager, became a regional transit director, and now at a county level, as a director for the wastewater division. What are the similarities and differences just besides being just a public sector? Yeah. Well, I mean, in a very broad sense, it's back to that sort of, we're here to make quality of life better in some way. That manifests itself right now with um, taking a waste product, so then it goes down the drain, cleaning it up and discharging it so that it doesn't harm and ultimately perhaps adds value to the environment it goes into. And more increasingly along the way, we're recognizing that that waste stream has value itself, that it has commodities, things of value that are in the wrong place and in the wrong form. But if we can get them in the right place, in the right form, uh, there's value to be captured there. You know, one of the ones that were on the more early edges are sewer heat recovery. You know, there's, you take a shower, you do laundry, that's warm water that's going down the drain. Can we capture the heat associated with that? Um, and then redirect that heat to some good purpose. In some ways, as city manager, we're trying to use the public's dollars, whether they're in the form of warm water going down the drain or tax dollars that we're collecting, to provide something good in return for the public. When I was with Burien, 
a relatively small city, but we did a lot of different things. So my day might be filled with maybe even a dozen subject uh, matters, permitting issue, a parks issue, a police issue, a lot of public works, a lot of things that start with their letter P, by the way. <laughs> that made it interesting and complex. And I liked the role because I had a chance to, I like to think I had a chance to add some form of value, whether it's better strategy, better execution, better communication across an array of services that local people really depend on. Some of them are very visible and they're tangible. They recognize them right away. I'm going to call on the phone because I'm worried about something somebody stole mail out of my mailbox, I need a police officer to respond to this issue. Or the park has, you know, a problem in it, the lights out, the kids can't play soccer, we need to get this thing fixed. There's a tangible relationship to a service or a need that, that a community member has. In my current role, we have a little distance between us and the customer because we're a wholesale entity. We do the major conveyance and treatments. And the local city or sewer district collects the wastewater. We just get it from them and then we treat it. But we're trying to keep that customer, though, front of mind ourselves. Because ultimately, there is a customer there. Um, and that customer is paying a bill every month uh, for that sewer service. Or that customer, in a sense, maybe they're not paying a bill, but they're fishing in a lake or they're swimming or boating um, or somehow benefiting from the water that we discharge into. So they're a recipient of our service, but indirectly. Uh, their satisfaction depends on us doing a good job. So we're trying to keep that right. customer in mind. Right. No, I like the fact that you discovered waste as a value in this role. And even though you're not directly impacting the customer with the first phone call, you have a massive regional impact on how the end residents ultimately feel about the watershed. That's right. And it's getting to be more complex all, all the time. Um, so we have both aspirational goals. We'd like to uh, have that sense of, uh, you know, it gets called the circular economy. So seeing things not as cradle to grave, but cradle to cradle. So there's a continuous stream. And we're really talking about capturing value at all those different places. Um, so keeping that mindset and then you know, looking at issues that are kind of coming our way. We have contaminants in the wastewater stream, pharmaceuticals, uh, for example. We take pharmaceuticals and when we use the toilet, those go through the system and they end up in the wastewater here. So if somebody might have, I have a family history of blood clots. People take warfarin or other medications for those kinds of things to manage it. Well, it gets into the wastewater stream and then either that or a metabolite of that can be a problem in the water body in which we eventually discharge. We're only starting to recognize that now. And sometimes those pharmaceuticals may be at levels that can cause some harm. So how do we deal with that? Because our, our wastewater systems were mostly built in the 1960s. It's way before anybody was managing for pharmaceuticals. So we'll be looking at opportunities to better understand this and then better treat or those kinds of things. So that's an impact. Uh, I mentioned the sewer heat recovery. We also recover a lot of biogas from our system where we can use to heat our plants and heat buildings. That's a byproduct of the treatment process is that you can uh, get this. And it once you scrub it, it's just like natural gas you'd buy from your local utility. You use it in the same fashion. 
And in fact, King County sells back to our local utility quite a lot of biogas that we've scrubbed and then put back into the regional system. And so there's value that we get out of that waste stream uh, that we can recover. That brings money back in. It helps to moderate the rates that we charge because we're getting revenue back to help us pay for costs. So there's great opportunity, but the system is getting more complex all the time. No question. I mean, the cradle-to-cradle sewer heat recovery, biogas, the impact of pharmaceutical, I mean, this is a never-ending challenge and scientific, you know, stretching the limits of what the wastewater treatment means. Yeah. So I want to ask a question. You're relatively new to the wastewater sector. Obviously, you don't sound in the last (laughs) five minutes that you're new. But what is one thing that surprised you about running a wastewater division? Yeah. um, There's a lot of things that are new to me in this line of business. You're, You're correct. I think I didn't fully understand the complexity of this line of business. Um, that was a little surprising to me. I had a little probably overly simplistic and a little out of date understanding of it. And it's actually been pretty on balance, more encouraging than discouraging to understand that complexity better. I do think the more complexity means we have more opportunity to optimize. Mm-hmm. With a simple system, you have very few levers you can pull. And so you want to pull those in the right direction and that kind of thing. Complex system has its challenges of understanding it and managing it, but you have many more levers that you can pull. Um, and I'm using that as a metaphor here, but dials to turn, levers to pull, to try to optimize value out of the system. So as we recognize those opportunities, then we can uh, start to really focus our attention on how do we optimize that? We, we actually have right now a biogas optimization program that we're initiating here at King County. As we produce biogas, as I said, as a byproduct of the wastewater treatment process at all three of our regional treatment plants. One plant is able to capture and beneficially use north of 90 to 95% of that biogas. The other plants don't have a way to beneficially use the gas they can capture. We use it to heat some of the plant system, but we flare uh, some of it away. Not unlike you would see in an oil field where you have natural gas flaring off an oil field. And like any sort of rational person, you look at that and you say, well, goodness, that flare is not doing any good. It's not putting anything to, to use. The good news is we're burning the methane, so it's not a terrible greenhouse gas, but the heat that goes from that flare is not being put to beneficial use. We are looking to do more at our two plants that do more of the flaring to capture that gas and put it to some kind of use. Perhaps we can sell it back into the system the way we do at our, our South plant and our local utility can buy that gas. Perhaps we can find a third party to use that gas for a, an industrial process, maybe next door to our plant. I recently came back from a... Um, a trip to Denmark, and the Danes are very good at this kind of thing. We call it industrial symbiosis, where they make deliberate decisions to co-locate uses that can benefit directly from each other, and the proximity makes it easy. So we're looking for an opportunity at one of our plants to see if there's a nearby industrial use that could take our biogas and then put that to use. Uh, The third plant, we might have uses on site on that plant. 
uh, for uses of the biogas, where we can use it even more for our own processes on the plant. So we'll have a tailored solution depending on the location, but all of it needs to try to maximize the capture, maximize the beneficial use, reduce greenhouse gas impacts, and ideally create even more revenue to help offset costs. It's a holistic frame that we're taking on this. And that's the kind of thing that is, I didn't know the opportunity was here. So that's kind of an example of the surprise. Actually, it's fascinating. It's full of opportunities. That's what I read, what you took away from it. You talked about the five treatment plants. I mean, you have a complex system. Just to highlight to the audience, you know, 400 miles of interceptors, 48 pump stations, 39 outfalls, asset base worth billions of dollars if you have to replace it today. Yes. And it's a system that's running live. That's right. In a real system, it might sit from 12 a.m. to 4 a.m. This stuff is running live. And at any point in time, you have to make sure that the environment is clean, the public health is captured at every second, every minute. You cannot say that, okay, this hour, we're not going to have a good public health (laughs) situation. That's right. And more importantly, you're serving the hottest tech market in the country, or at least one of the hottest. Mm -hmm. So you put all this together. What are the challenges that come with leading such a division? Yeah. I will describe a handful because there are many challenges, Um, but a handful right now is that we are working in a high cost environment. By definition, Seattle's a very high cost market and costs are rising rapidly. We've had these impacts with the pandemic, of course, and supply chain challenges, but we need to attract talent here to this market too. Um, I happen to be sitting in our West Point treatment plant today, which is out kind of on the very western edge of Seattle on Puget Sound. Mm -hmm. It's right next to a large park. And the neighborhood that's here is called Magnolia. It is one of the higher cost neighborhoods in Seattle. So physically getting to this plant is not easy, number one. And even if you could live nearby, very hard to afford that. So One of the challenges we have is attracting talent, and that's from the leadership to engineers. And by the way, if you know any engineers, we need to hire them. Uh, And plant operators too. And so our plant operators, many have to commute long distances to get to a place where they can afford to live and then still work at our plant. So that's one is a whole talent pool challenge. And we are a growing system. We're going to be needing to attract talent across uh, the board. That's one challenge. Um, I mentioned affordability. As we look at our work program, we've got the highest capital program in King County today. King County is a very, uh, you know, I think our, our two-year budget was around $16 billion or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a big enterprise. Now, a lot of that are expensive things like courts and jails and cops, but wastewater treatment is, is one of the bigger entities that we have. We have the largest capital program for the county. So we do about $200 million per year of capital work. We have about that much in operational costs as well. So that's sort of the baseline. And what's fascinating, Mahesh, is our projections are looking to our capital program, not just doubling, possibly tripling or even quadrupling over these next roughly 10 to 15 years. And there are a number of drivers for that. Um, We're in the process of trying to identify and characterize and then explain those drivers to our rate paying audience, our local elected officials and the others, 
that we charge money to, to, to operate the system. Uh, so then drivers are increasing the capacity in a growing area. Plants need to be able to accommodate the additional wastewater that's generated. So, and we've been, even through the pandemic, uh, housing development in the Seattle area continues to proceed very strongly. We have increasing regulatory duties. Um, there, as I said, the regulations are getting more complex. And for some of your audience, they'll probably know the, our most recent four-letter word is PFAS. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a real challenge. We don't know exactly where that particular regulation is going yet, but it's going to require more for us. And then we have an older system. Um, our system, the core of it, was built in the 1960s. Um, here in Seattle, voters approved at the time the creation of what was called the municipality of Metropolitan Seattle. It's called Metro. And it handled sewage and buses. Both of those uh, lines of business have been taken into King County back in the 90s. They were subsumed by King County. So we do those businesses now. But the system that we built comes out of the 60s, by and large, was upgraded in the 90s with secondary treatment, by and large. And we're going to be looking at taking the system into a third generation, looking ahead. So we've got all of the needs for like what a system of the future needs to look like. And we've got legacy issues coming out of the past. It's like you bought an old house and it's got wonderful character and great bones, but you open up every door and there's something to do in that room as well. And so that's where we find ourselves is managing these assets is expensive. And so those are just a handful of the drivers for our system. Um, so when I look at the future, it's helping ourselves and our, our rate paying constituents feel confident that we're using that dollar effectively to accomplish those goals. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of checks to cut in the next several years, but you have to make sure those checks are creating an incredible amount of value That's right. to overcome these challenges you talked about, right? That's right. I love the fact that you are building the third generation wastewater systems in King County. I mean, that to me is fascinating. That includes creating value out of the waste, making sure that every dollar of waste is converted into a revenue profile for your county. So there's many terrific aspects of this. I want to ask you a question. You've been in this role close to two years, a year, nine months. Mm-hmm. Any CEO that takes on, I mean, your role is a CEO of the division. You make changes. Sometimes they make changes immediately, like Elon Musk has done for Twitter. It's not your own log right now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or sometimes you absorb and you understand. Yeah. And so, so what is the changes you're driving and why? Well, some of these things that were underway when I joined and I just, my role is to make sure they happen and perhaps enhance them along the way. One of the, a good example of that would be uh, our focus on better uh, realizing equity goals in our system. King County is a wonderful place and has a great economy. And we have people that are at the lower end of that economy. And we have parts of our community that are struggling financially. With our cost rising, we need to make sure that we do what we can to help mitigate that impact on especially the lowest 20% 20% quintile of our, our ratepayer base. We don't have very good tools for that right now, Mahesh, as a wholesaler. We don't have that direct customer interface. So we're trying to figure out how we can execute that. Um, is there a way that we can 
help mitigate um, that. So it's both a cost issue and there's kind of a fairness issue. You're familiar that a lot of industrial types of uses have often been placed into places that aren't the high end of town. They're the low end of town. That's where the, the smelly stuff goes, the loud stuff goes. And the people who live in those parts of the community have taken those impacts um, historically. And that, that's true here, like other places. We need to find a way, I think, to, uh, with our facilities, such that the assets that we either have or are going to create actually are seen and welcomed by the communities where they're going to go. Some of them have to go places because of engineering requirements. Water flows downhill. I can't put a treatment plant back at the top of the mountain. That's not going to work for anybody. Right. But we can do a better job of having a lighter touch, a more graceful touch, a more engaged relationship with the communities that we serve, especially the ones where our facilities are directly relocated in those places. And we're going to be building some new stuff, uh, we think, in the coming years in some of those locations. I think we need to see that as, as an opportunity and as a duty to do that better um, than perhaps decisions made in, in the past where, you know, I'll pick on my former line of business transportation. It used to be that you just build a highway right through the poorest part of town because that made it easy for the wealthy people to get in and out. Many American cities suffer from that problem. To some extent, sewage treatment plants and other facilities were put in the poor part of town because nobody wanted them in other places. We need to have an equitable kind of approach to all of that so that if we have to put something somewhere for engineering reasons, we do it in the most uh, fair way possible. And ideally, we'd like to see that the community, like I said, see it as a local asset. We are just putting into service and into commissioning a new wet weather treatment station here in what we call the Soto part of Seattle. So it's the south of downtown or Soto. This is a part of our community that has an industrial character. They sort of embrace the industrial character, but we work with them such that the new facility we built there fit that character well, uh, would be seen as fitting in nicely in that neighborhood. And it could create some amenities for the people that live there. So we've got a community room that people can utilize for meetings. We'll be using it for training, for recruitment, for our staff positions. Could be used for community education and those kinds of things. We're not just putting a, a piece of plop art, a statue out front. We're trying to right. create opportunities for stormwater on that site to be cleaned on site. And then people can be educated about how that process works and see that process and action on the site. And so we involved a lot of community members in that project design. And that's a 250 plus million dollar facility. So pretty big asset, pretty big investment. We're looking at probably something that's in the one to two billion dollar range. It's going to be up the street for it in the coming 10 to 15 years. Might be a bigger version of what we've done here, might be something else, but we'll need to take that same kind of approach to build an asset that's welcome, that adds value to that community. So that's one of the interesting things that I have the good fortune of being here at the time where I can help to make sure that that occurs. Now, are you converting what is presumably a dirty asset in a poor neighborhood into a high value asset that the neighborhood feels that it can engage with, interact with, or even enjoy portions of it in terms of uh, you know, community rooms and just parks. You can also create 
probably valuable parts out of it. Exactly. And I'll tell you, the trip to Denmark, the, the Danes are very good at this kind of stuff. And I'm sure other countries are out ahead of us in some ways. They can build infrastructure that has it. If you ever get a chance to go to Copenhagen and see Copenhill, mm-hmm. they built a ski facility on top of a uh, waste of energy plant. So you've got this big thing that burns garbage, but it's clean and it's quiet and you can go up and ski down the top of it. I mean, that's not what I'm trying to build here, but it's a great example of building something that is an asset right. public can benefit from. Right. You already actually touched on this very early on in the conversation, the resiliency, ESG, circular economy, water reuse. I mean, these are emerging themes and the way you discuss, it isn't emerging for you. You're actually deep into it, right? Correct. Just to building on to some of the comments you made, what does each of these mean to you and how are you preparing organizations to embrace them, you know, as you move forward in the next five, 10 years? Yeah. And I think we've got a story to tell to ourselves and to our public across all of those things. You mentioned that several of those different kind of topic areas. That's why this is a complex business. We can't just say, well, we'll do this better here because there may be a downside to doing it better there. We need to optimize across several different criteria to be fully successful in this. So to me, it means making sure that we have really good information to inform the decisions that we make and the recommendations that we make. Ultimately, a county council, for example, sets our sewer rate. That's our main source of revenue. For them to set that rate, and the rates typically go up every year, they have to have confidence that what we're doing makes good sense. You use the term adding value. I think that's exactly right. They need confidence that the dollar is going to that value. And there's healthy debate in a democracy about where that dollar should really go. Is it more important for climate or for equity, for water quality? You know, where are we trying to maximize? And we have things that are sort of pushing us from the outside. We have our own goals from the inside that we're trying to realize um, as well. That's the context. And so we need good information. Looking ahead to that sort of third generation, I think like any old house, I'd like us to keep the bones of the house. It, It was well built. There's no reason to tear it down. We can continue to use this same house, but we need to upgrade the operations of that house, the outfitting of that house better. I live in a house that was built in 1930. We just had the good fortune to redo the kitchen. So we're upgrading some of the technology that we have in that kitchen so that it serves us better. It's more energy efficient. Um, It's going to do a better job faster. Um, It's safer. A lot of different things that you can do as you go through that process. And frankly, thinking about your line of business, it needs to be smarter in terms of how it manages um, as well. So as we go forward, we're looking at technology, software, and integrated systems across a very complex system. We need access to information that's accurate and in a form that's easy to use. And we need to do it often quickly, uh, both for our engineering work, but also to respond to -to day-to-day challenges. And so that house that we have needs to function and perform better. It still does about the same job in in a sense, you know, the house accommodates people, but we're going to ask it to do more. Uh, So yeah, it was built to treat wastewater and 
largely has to take pathogens out of the wastewater. That was really what was all about. That's right. Get the bad bugs so that people don't get sick from drinking or bathing in that, or swimming in that water. Well, now we've got, yes, keep doing, dealing with the bad bugs. We're also going to deal with the pharmaceuticals and the PFAS. And we got to deal with, you know, all of the positive goals of resource recovery. And we got to make sure that we have a lighter touch on the climate. It's a much more complex job and we'll need both the technical skill and the human resource, but we'll also need the technology to run this house, run this system going into the future. Right. So that, that's also exciting to me. Everything you described, and I mentioned this, uh, I think when I was talking to New York City DEP, Pam Alardo at that time, mm-hmm. it almost seems like your role, you aren't a wastewater treatment division director. You really are a circular economy director within the county that you serve because uh, you're touching gas, you're cleaning up PFAS, you're touching cleaning up watersheds, and you're producing valuable nutrients that you can put it back into the ag or right. the role fundamentally is redefined. Yeah. Do everything you talked about. Yeah. I think you're right. And I think it's partially true for a lot of people in, in the public sector is that there's been a better realization that we can't just keep the silo that we kind of got trained in or kind of grew up in professionally. We need to take those blinders off and look at how our role is in fact part of a larger whole and that we have a duty, responsibility, and an opportunity to recognize that better. And I'll say too, I think people in the private sector can help us with that because they can often see things that we can't, uh, whether it's opportunity or change, we need that private sector point of view to help inform our decision-making. And we're also going to need the horsepower because we don't have it all here. Don't have all the knowledge we have and we can't attract all the talent we're going to need. That's right. So we're going to have to bring in, and we do this all the time, people to help us sort of see that landscape more fully and absolutely accurately. And what's interesting with Hesh is I'm enough of a nerd. I mean, I grew up watching Star Trek, right? And the mm-hmm. nice thing about that, it was a combination of a show that talked about technology and, you know, what people can achieve with their brain power. A lot of it was about relationships and dealing with things that are kind of at the core of what it means to be a human being. And I think that's actually true for all of our work, whether you're in public or private sector, ultimately you're doing something that helps us all succeed a little bit better. Maybe it's more safely, maybe it's more cheaply, maybe it's with better outcomes. And if we do our partnerships right, then we can each add to that equation and really leverage the strengths that we have across uh, those different uh, disciplines and those different sectors. But I'm really looking forward to even more robust work with private sector partners. I should mention our big capital program, we are looking at, I think the term now is called collaborative delivery Mm -hmm. as opposed to alternative delivery, Mm -hmm. because it's really become much more of a standard. It's now the standard as opposed to the alternative. And so we're looking to expand our use of those techniques. And we're out right now, in fact, to recruit for an owner advisor for that big project uh, that we were talking about also in our Soto area. Uh, that help us navigate that complexity of a big project that will take 
somewhere between 10 and 15 years to design and build and then commission. No, it, it is really refreshing and really fascinating, Cameron, to hear just several thoughts here, including how you need that expertise because things are getting complex, right? And you cannot have everything in-house. And are you going to leverage a good partnership to deliver on the promise you're making to the communities that you serve? That's right. And by the way, the point you made about partnerships and people, at the end of the day, if those two words are not in the mix, what are we doing this for? Yeah, that's right. If it's not for human relationships, you know? That's exactly right. And we have all of a role to play and perhaps a portion of the success that we can help define and execute, but it's really part of a larger whole. And I would agree. I, I think if we can all think that we're the circular economy director in our role, um, if we kind of keep a little portion of that job description in our head, then the role that we do play, I think will be a little bit better because we'll be thinking more holistically um, as we approach. So being a founder and CEO of a tech company, I had to ask this question, what is the role of technology in the wastewater infrastructure and what are you most excited about? We are absolutely dependent on good technology to help us do our jobs. Um, it is an existential thing for it. If it's not here, we can't do our job. And it is a continuously changing landscape where the capabilities of technology continue to expand. And we need, because we have a lot of it deployed today, and it's a combination of new and old, kind of like that old house. Right. You just look at the technology, the software, and the hardware that goes along with it. We have the old and the new, and we're asking them to kind of work together. And some of the old stuff will come to the end of this life and get swapped out. But we still have a lot of things that are standard. Pumps, right? I need good pumps. I need pumps that are built like back in the 60s. They were built better than They're not built well these days. I wish they were, but they're not. And we need really good operational management systems to help us because we don't have enough people to run around in trucks and fix everything. So it's incredibly important. And we have a pretty robust work program and it is continuously challenged with the change. I know some of our folks have been talking with members of your team. AI realm, for example, is comparatively new to us. Um, we're trying to understand it, how it could work with our system to help us manage it better. I'm excited for that part of our future, and I want to try to help us to advance in that realm. And you can choose almost any form of technology where uh, we can do that better. I will say, too, one of the challenges that we have in our system, I don't know if you find this in your work with others across the country, but we depend on a lot of electric power for our system to work well. That's another part of, unfortunately, in the United States, our electric power grid or systems also suffer from lack of investment. And we've had sewage overflows because we've lost power, because we've had power pumps. And a lot of our work in the last handful of years has been to work with our local utilities to reduce the likelihood and severity of those. So better power coming in. And then when they do come in, because they're still going to come in, uh, how do we manage it better? And so we've been working with our manufacturers, uh, the equipment that we use to better ride through some of those kinds of problems. Um, so our system is more robust and resilient. 
Right. It's not unlike you would do for earthquake resiliency. You want to be able to roll with the punches a bit uh, because the punches probably are not going to stop. So that's a contextual problem. If I could wave a wand, I'd have a lot more money spent on the electrical grid because it would help me deliver wastewater better. Right. No, because you use power. Absolutely. There's no other way to move the water and treat the water without power. It's not magical. We are the biggest electric power user in King County government. You should be concerned, right? Yep. Uh, make sure the quality of the power is good. So you've been a public administrator at many different levels. You know, I moved into this industry seven years ago. I was serving Fortune 500 executives and CEOs around the world. So it's a, I came from a B2B world to a B2G world. Uh-huh. And this industry taught me patience. <laughs> but I got a question for you, though. How would you change? So the B2G adoption the business-to-government adoption of new things is just about as fast as B2B adoption. It never be equal. We cannot say F-150 run like a Ferrari. I mean, just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But how do you drive the adoption faster if there is a way you can make it happen? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I'm not sure I have a perfect answer here, but I, I do know that government entities are, by tradition, probably more risk averse, generally speaking. And some of that is comes out of statute and other things that are driving those that's not in our direct control. And when things go wrong in a public entity, they are sure by definition in a spotlight. So you tend to attract and have a culture of risk aversion. So it's really asking how do you get over some of the humps that are caused by that? So I would say there's, to some extent, a built-in a bit reluctance and hesitancy. The other thing that's a hurdle is the, you know what, I finally got funding for the last technology that I've been trying to get here and I'm going to deploy that. I need two years, five years, whatever it is to get that done. Then I'll come talk to you about your new technology. And I'm frustrated by that too, but that answer is out there. And in my agency, it's in a lot of my, my peers. And it's not an unreasonable or sort of a wrong-headed thing. It's just that sort of human nature, I think, talking that there's only got so much bandwidth and I, you're asking me to make 17 changes and I just can't keep up with all of them. And I have an old house and I'm still trying to get the power to this room. <laughs> so it's a fair, fair perspective. My job is to find opportunities where we can comparatively safely test drive and deploy these new technologies and demonstrate that they're going to work well, work with our system, identify whether there's hiccups or bugs or something like that. And so if there's a business case to expand, then it's easier to do so because we have familiarity with it. But it probably does take people like me to get over that internal hump. They need some leadership and some visionary stuff to see the opportunity. And I have to work with my own internal kind of inertia, if you will, not myself, but my organization has some. So that's probably what you're seeing. Yeah. If I was in your shoes, I could see that would be a bit frustrating. And so I'm here to say, yeah, you're right about your frame on this. There is that hesitancy and there's opportunity. We just need to find that right place to go view. So that's what I'm learning our line of business and trying to get a sense of where those opportunities are here. And I'm optimistic within this next probably six to 18 months, we will find those opportunities here in my agency. 
And then the other thing that happens is that we're very good. One advantage with the public sector is it's all open source technology. When somebody does something well, we talk about it and it is free for others to learn. And there's a gravitational pull that you get because I've solved the problem. I do this better and people run. And then because they see their partner agency or their peer do it, it's a lot easier to then see it go forward. So that's the other piece that I think is part of all of this is to see these kinds of things successfully deployed and then they can go and expand uh, right. from there across peer agencies. Right. No, I call it the fraternity, <laughs> right? If you make it work, the fraternity will speak, right? Yes. You know, I was part of the Water 2050 team of gathering of American Water Works Association last week. And one of the topics I raised as part of the 2050 was how do you make water sector the top 10 sectors yeah. incoming graduates? And it's, it's impossible. My two sons graduated from computer science, yeah. working for tech firms. I mean, people go on to tech, financial consulting, et cetera. Any quick thoughts on what is that intrinsic? And you, you talked about how difficult it is for you to recruit. Yeah, I think we have a great story to tell, and I'm not sure we're telling it effectively enough at the college and graduate school um, levels. And I do think that those kinds of graduates will have different motivations. Oftentimes, they're, especially these days, people gravitate towards something that looks hot, that looks like it's going to be financially very rewarding, and they're much more risk-loving at that stage. I'm willing to try the startup or the this because I, I'm young enough that if it doesn't work out, I can go to the next thing. So we may not attract people right out of the gate, but we may have an opportunity after somebody's had some of that experience. You know, sometimes that hot thing ends up not really being so hot. We see that a lot, like the news in the last two weeks. It's even something as, as robust as we thought some of our social media systems are, they can go down or suffer great injury very, very quickly. The advantage, I would say, of work that's either for the public sector directly or serving the public sector as your business does, we're not going anywhere. We're not going out of business anytime soon. That's right. And we have a really important mission. And I think that's the part that we miss in school is to talk about that mission. Because if you can feel engaged with an organization because what you do is really helping to make the world better place, I know it makes a difference for me. Maybe it doesn't make a difference for everybody, but I think it does have traction with some of our students out there. They would feel that sense that, oh, well, yeah, you know, I may not get a big bonus, but there's still a pension plan here and a robust one in Washington state. It's not on thin ice. It's actually in good shape. So I've got my future here. That's not something you find very often anymore. And while I'm working here, I'm involved in a mission that, in a sense, could not be more important, whether it's water quality or just pick a topic area here. All of us depend on these things, whether we see it tangibly in a day or not. If we don't do a good job, then you know it, and you'll know it uh, pretty quickly. So there's a mission piece that I think we can do more of. I think that's true for engineering firms, too. We work with a lot of firms that do work for us, design work, that kind of thing. And we trade the employees back and forth. We'll find a person, I'll say, hey, I used to work with you over at the city of so-and-so, and now they're 
with a design or engineering firm or environmental firm. So I think there's an opportunity there, and I think we need to do a better job of reaching out um, to those graduates. Let me tell you a very quick thing, Mahesh, here, which is on the retail end of this, we have to find operators for our plants. We don't need necessarily a four-year degree or even a two-year degree to do this, but this is not easy work. This is complex work where you're operating machinery that's expensive, it's complex, there's a lot of electronics that you're responsible for, very big system, and if you don't do it right, we have a big problem. It's a line of business that doesn't attract everybody, and the schools don't train for it, I, but there's not an operator school. No, I 100% agree with you, Cameron. And in fact, you know, I came from the manufacturing sector and we lost a huge manufacturing base in the last 30 years because yeah. of globalization. Yeah. Uh, I feel like there needs to be mass mobilization of retraining whoever just left of that uh, into operators and kind of ITT kind of graduates that would come out of a technical mechanic, yeah, exactly. electrician, instrument techs, and all these kinds of things. We've got an operator and training program here where we're paying people to come into the system. It gets everything from a high school graduate kid, 18, 19 years old, to an army veteran might have spent a few years in the service. We've got moms that are done with kids and are coming back into the system. We need more women. And we're expanding that to now to the electricians and the mechanics. And we're going to be competing for those as well. Listen, the middle class was created, you know, in 80s and 90s through manufacturing jobs. And I believe this is the new middle class through the public sector jobs. Yeah. Because there is no shortage throughout the country. I want to get a little personal. Two questions I have. Okay. One is, what is the one leadership lesson you learned? And what would your be guidance to anybody that wants to be a leader in the public sector? I would say... A leadership lesson would be to use all of your senses and not just your brain. Uh, especially use your ears and your eyes. You can learn a lot about the nature of the problem by making sure you have a well-rounded kind of perspective on things and that you use your kind of full array of senses to make sure you've got a fully informed sense of, of what that opportunity or that challenge is. And we get so tempted to look at a chart or a, hear an anecdote or something else, and I'm guilty of it too, and make a decision based on incomplete information. And so take the time to get yourself the information you need and use your full array of your skills. Sometimes that's using your talent, your own brain trust to make sure. I was doing it this afternoon. I had one sense of something and I think I needed to get better informed. So I test drove an idea. My idea is probably not the right one, but the problem statement is still there. We need to figure out a better solution for it. So that's a leadership lesson is to use your whole self. I'm going to internalize that leadership lesson myself because I sometimes you have to also add the heart to it. It's true. When you make a decision, right? The second part of that question You've been around for a long time on various roles. What do you want your one legacy to be? I do come back to that. It's a probably a simplistic understanding, but I'd like to think that uh, when I'm done in my professional career, people will look upon that to say that he played an important role. He added value um, in the challenges or the opportunities that he had there, and he helped people be successful in their roles. 
That is, I used my position, my voice to help others be successful, whether that's the community at large, whether that's the team that works uh, with me. I'm a people-centered person. We're doing this over, over electronic means, and a lot of my meetings these days are over electronic means. But I wanted to be down here at West Point today because we had a holy recognition and we had a lot of people in person talking with each other in real life. I need that type of energy to be, to be successful. Um, and so, you know, there's a phrase that I've heard, I, I forget who it's attributed to, but it does resonate to me that says, they may not remember what you did, but they will remember how you made them feel. And it's a wise phrase. And if your legacy that you leave behind is that people felt better because you were part of that, that you played an effective role and they, they felt that in their heart, then I think you've probably done right. It sounds very simple, but it's probably very complex too. So Cameron, I'll tell you, it's been fascinating 50 minutes. You, you are building the third generation wastewater system and impacting greater Seattle area. You're thinking waste to value. You're looking at applying all the, you talked about applying all the census, handling one of the biggest budgets in the King County, talking about circular economy. I mean, there are so many things that we discussed in this uh, that I'm fascinated. And I want to actually listen to this story again <laughs> once it gets produced, because I haven't internalized every comment you made. But I want to thank you for your valuable time. Thank you for sharing this with everyone. I look forward to seeing you soon. That sounds great, Mahesh. Thanks so much for the opportunity, your thoughtful questions, and appreciate the value that you and your company are providing as well. We look forward to continuing our conversation, and I'll see you uh, down the road, I'm sure, at a conference very soon. Join host and Aquasite founder and CEO Mahesh Lunani for another episode of 21st Century Water. Subscribe for free in Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. Produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts.